welcome to the Theology Mill podcast brought to you by Whitfinstock Publishers. My name is Zach Mickle. I am the digital marketing manager and an associate acquisitions editor here at Whitfinstock. I'm also the host of this podcast, which consists of interviews with leading authors and thinkers in theology, biblical studies, and philosophy. If you like what you're hearing on our podcast, please stop by our website at whitfinstock.com, where you can browse our catalog as well as check out our blog. So on this episode, I speak with Dr. J.D. Lionheart, who is an assistant professor of theology and philosophy at Lincoln Christian University. He's also a fellow at the Cambridge Center for the Study of Platonism at Cambridge University and the co-host of the Spiritually Incorrect podcast. And most recently, he is the author of a Cascade book uh, entitled Space God, Rejudging a Debate Between Moore, Newton, and Einstein. So with that, thank you very much for listening, and I hope you enjoy this episode. Okay, so I am here with J.D. Lionheart, the author of Space God, Rejudging a Debate Between Moore, Newton, and Einstein, which published with Cascade in October 2023 and is a part of our Studies in the Doctrine of God series. Uh, it's very good to have you on. J.D. Um, is a, a moniker of sorts for Jonathan, so I'll refer to him as Jonathan here. But Jonathan, could you tell us a little bit about yourself as we kick things off? Uh, maybe share, if you want to, about your research interests and kind of what you do for a living. Yeah, so I'm an assistant professor of theology and philosophy at Lincoln Christian University in the States. I'm also a fellow at the Cambridge Center for the Study of Platonism at the University of Cambridge. Uh, and I'm the co-host of the Spiritually Incorrect podcast. So a competing podcast with the Theology <laughs> Mill. Hopefully today we can steal some of your viewers. Um, so, yeah, it, but uh, that's that's what I do. I uh, I think of myself as an interdisciplinary theologian and philosopher. So whenever someone asks me what my re- like what my main area is, I, I don't know what to tell them because I just jump around to whatever is interesting at the time. The first book was on the Trinity and free will, and the second book is on God's relationship to space. And I I, I kind of just go with what's interesting. So mm-hmm. I do mm-hmm. a lot of stuff in film studies. I've been uh, putting together a project on gender and film and theology. And I, yeah, so interdisciplinary theologian, philosopher. Awesome. Kind of the, awesome. what I do. Sounds so. great. Okay, so I know we're going to be talking a lot about Henry Moore today. So um, I want to kick off our our episode with our, our usual kind of icebreaker roundtable question. Um, which is if you could put three figures, uh, three other figures, we'll put Henry Moore in the room already, um, but three other figures dead or alive uh, together with Henry Moore, and you could kind of listen into their conversation and be a fly on the wall, who would you choose to be in that room and why? I've always wanted to to write a book subtitled Rejudging a Debate Between Moore, Newton, and Einstein. And so Moore, Newton, and Einstein. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Well, I guess the, the, the subtitle of the book is Henry Moore, Newton, and Einstein. So I guess the easy, cheap answer is I would put Henry Moore, Isaac Newton, and uh, Albert Einstein into a room. But to to get to actually answer your question, I would probably put Plato. 
maybe C.S. Lewis, uh, because mm-hmm. Lewis actually was originally considering doing his dissertation on Henry Moore, but then switched. Um, and Lewis has a very noted uh, Platonic sort of connection. You know, it's all in Plato. It's all in Plato. So those would be interesting. And then maybe just throw in a wild card, like a, a Nietzsche or something. Someone who just rejects the entire Western Christian Platonic attempt to fit reality into a, a system or a theology or some sort of meaningful form um, and just see what happens then. So. Sure. So you'd be looking for some productive friction. (laughs) Yeah, those kinds of conversations can be really fun to listen to, for sure. Okay, well, since, yeah, since this book, uh, Space God, is is in in a way kind of a recuperation of Henry Moore um, and his theories of space, right? So Henry Moore, I'll I'll let you talk about him more, but um, just, just quickly that he, you know, so folks know at least what century and what part of the world he's from was a 17th century English philosopher. Um, but as we're, as we're beginning to talk about more, could you share with our listeners just a bit about who, who he was and what were sort of his major philosophical contributions? Yeah. So, I mean, you started to touch on it. Henry Moore, born 1614, died 1687. He's an English philosopher and he's part of this highly influential group called the Cambridge Platonists. Um, and a lot of people might not have heard of the Cambridge Platonists, uh, but in the 17th century, they were considered one of the leading philosophical theological schools in the world at the time. And so incredibly influential, they were attempting to be Platonic Platonists, but also Christian at the same time and to hold those things in tension. A lot of the tradition had gone more sort of the scholastic direction, and they they were aware of the scholastic world, but they were trying to retrieve less Aquinas and more Plato. And at the same time, they were trying to take seriously the rising scientific revolution. They were reading all of the major figures. They were really engaging with Descartes, who wasn't just an important philosopher, but also a very influential scientist in his own right. They were tackling head-on the issues of the day in a way that a lot of Christian philosophers and theologians just weren't. Um, And so they were a really big deal at the time. But then what happens is they sort of get seen as losing the 17th century battle. They sort of, the Christian philosopher, Christian Platonist sort of loses out to more figures like, uh, say, a Hobbes, you know, who who I wouldn't say is an atheist, but who isn't your typical Christian Platonic mm-hmm. philosopher. Guys like Spinoza, these become bigger figures uh, later down the line uh, in subsequent centuries. And it, I guess you could say that in many ways, the scientific revolution, the Western Enlightenment modernity, uh, at least in hindsight, has been cast as a... Uh, secularizing force. And you see there the sort of secularization thesis. And so I think they were one of the most important thinkers of the day. But I think in hindsight, we don't talk about them as much as we should. And something that's been really good in the last few decades is that at Cambridge itself, because these were philosophers and theologians who were at or associated with Cambridge, Douglas Headley has been helping to create this retrieval of the Cambridge Platonists and to help rewrite Western 
philosophical history to show just how influential they were. And they sort of present a different way to do modernity, uh, a different way to go about the enlightening tendency, a, a Christian way, a way that doesn't reject everything that went before, but merges and integrates and wrestles with it. That's, mm. that's kind of the Cambridge Platonists. Henry Moore is the most influential of the Cambridge Platonists. Him and Cudworth uh, are the, the kind of two major thinkers of the period, but there's, there's, there's another a number of other ones as well. They're uh, kind of a, a group of, of very influential thinkers that are all bouncing off of each other. Uh, John Locke isn't a Cambridge Platonist, but he actually was quite close friends with Cudworth's daughter. And so they're all, they're part of the, the big conversation and they're, they're part of, they're heavily integrated with all these different people and groups. And Henry Moore wrote letters to Descartes back and forth and because they're Platonic, they're, uh, they really push back against materialistic views of the world and of the sciences. They really want to emphasize the spiritual and immaterial aspects. And uh, Moore in particular is concerned that Descartes has severed spiritual and material substances and wants to rebind them back together again and allow the one to interact with and touch the other. So these are the types of questions that they're interested in, amongst others. Sure. Why do you think it is that kind of in posterity that uh, the Cambridge Platonists have not been taken up or remembered anywhere near as well as those other figures you're talking about, like Hobbes and Spinoza? Do you have any kind of hypotheses about why why that's been the case? Well, I think it's, I mean, as I said, I think they're seen as almost losing the battle to some extent. You know, the more uh, scientific lead the way, the more scandalous, provocative thinkers like Spinoza and Hobbes get seen as the major figures at the time, because later generations look back to them and decide they like what they were saying. And so it's I I think we've just sort of conveniently structured the narrative in a way that works for a modern secularizing world. Sure. Yeah, that makes sense. Okay, let's let's talk a bit about Moore and his his theories of space. So, I mean, obviously, that's very very central to what you're doing in your book. Um, uh, sort of the developments Moore uh, is making to kind of our understanding of space. So, what were some of sort of the central insights of his about space in particular? Basically, looking at space, Henry Moore realized that first of all, it was invisible. You can see things in space, but you can't see space itself. You know, I can see the person walking through space, but the space in which they walk is invisible. Objects within space are visible, but space itself is invisible. And so space is, one, invisible. But two, it's also omnipresent because you can't go anywhere except going in and through space. To be somewhere is to be in a spatial where, right? You can't go anywhere except going in and through space. And so space is, by definition, omnipresent because you can't be present anywhere except in spatial places. So space is invisible and it is, by definition, omnipresent. And he also thought, well, space seems like it must be infinite because if, you know, you were to keep going into outer space and keep going and going and going and eventually got to the edge of space where there's just a wall 
well, what would happen if we shot an arrow over that wall, as the famous uh, illustration goes? Well, then we can imagine the arrow going over the wall. And so there's more space behind the wall at the edge of space. And then if you have another wall behind that, well, what's, what's behind the wall? And you can just sort of keep going. So he reasoned that space must also be infinite. He also reasoned that space was absolute. And this is a bit more controversial post-Einstein. But uh, Moore's reasoning is that space is absolute. If you were to be on the face of the earth and were to shoot an arrow directly up and then looked up, which way does the arrow go? Does the arrow go directly up or does it curve with the rotation of the earth? Now, if there is no absolute spatial frame in which that question occurs, then there is no correct answer about the fact of the matter, because the arrow curves from one perspective and it goes straight from the other, in which case there is no objective primary qualities in matter itself. But Moore wouldn't like that, and uh, I think the scientific revolution itself wouldn't like that. Uh, Moore would argue that space provides an absolute frame. Relative to the absolute frame of space, the arrow curves with the motion of the Earth. When you sort of step back and look at a big picture view, space provides an absolute framework in which we can say, well, it only seemed to go straight from your perspective on the ground. But what do you know? You're an idiot who's looking directly up under an arrow that you just shot that's going to come back and hit you in the head. (laughs) But from a broader spatial frame that's absolute, you know, stepping back and looking at the planet from outer space, you can see that it curves. And so that gives an absolute objective frame for the material world. And so he would say that space is not just invisible, it's also omnipresent, it's infinite, and it is absolute. And he just keeps adding these attributes as he's thinking about space. Space is also imminent because, you know, space isn't just outer space at the edge of the heavens. No, I am occupying space right now. And space is not just at the edges of my body as if I were in a hot tub and the water was pressing up against my skin. No, space is within my body. There is space inside of me and I am in myself occupying space. There's space in my heart. There's the cavities of my heart but also the heart itself is in space. Space is as near to me as I am to myself. And so there's a deep imminence about space. Space is everywhere imminent and close, transcendent, because you can't reach out and grab space by the neck and sort of shake it like you could a material object. Space has this imminence about it, but it also has this transcendence about it. Uh, It transcends the material, physical, and arguably created world from Moore's perspective because matter exists within space. Self is not material. Space is the house or home or place of matter. And so space is imminent with matter. It's close. It's near. It's personal. And yet simultaneously, it transcends matter. It's beyond the material. Space could exist even if the entire material world didn't exist. You can't have it the other way. You can't have matter existing without the space in which it exists. And so he, he makes this really interesting move where space is imminent and close and personal, but it's also transcendent at the same time. And when you just sort of round all of those things up, invisible, infinite, omnipresent, absolute, and transcendent, 
you realize, as Henry Moore realized, well, sounds a whole heck of a lot like God. The move that Henry Moore eventually kind of dares to take. What if space is everything that, and, you know, exhaustive of the divine nature, but what if space is sort of an, an aspect or an attribute or an extension of the divine? And that's the move he kind of makes. And from his perspective, it's kind of the only move you can make, because if you don't make that move, then you have something other than God that is absolute, invisible, omnipresent, transcendent, and imminent, and infinite. And that almost sounds like a competing God or heresy or sacrilege. So he doesn't want to do that either. So he, he, he kind of dares to make this move that, well, what if we just say space is in some sense divine? And it's interesting because discomfort most people would have with that, and which I initially had, was that sounds a whole heck of a lot like pantheism, you know, <laughs> divinizing space. What's so cool about this is Henry Moore hates Spinoza. He hates pantheism with a passion. He has this whole thing about how it makes God into a turd. Um, and it makes, you know, he, it just, it divinizes the, the wretchedness of creation. And he, he doesn't want to do that because he's got that Platonic background as well as the Christian background. He's not going to, you know, make the material all that is or divine. But for him, space, divine space, is not a slippery slope into pantheism. Rather, it's precisely the way by which we avoid pantheism. Because divine space allows God to be close, near, omnipresent, and personal, and imminent, without being reducible to the physical world. Because while matter exists within space, Matter is not identical to the space in which it exists. And so space is arguably the only thing in the extended universe that is literally present everywhere without being part of the material universe or just of matter, I suppose you could say. So he sees it as a way to have God be very close and omnipresent everywhere in a literal sense. Well, not making God reducible to the physical world because space is not the material world, or even the material universe in Moore's system. It's the house or home or place of the material universe. And he makes a, a number of statements where he says, we can imagine space existing without matter, but we can't exist, imagine matter existing without space. And for him, it's crucial that matter, material creation, is distinct from space. And that's precisely how he not only avoids pantheism, but provides a unique way to allow God to be close in the way the Christian tradition believes he is without having to appeal to pantheism. So it's in some ways, it's, it's a unique way to avoid pantheism. So that's the big, sure. that's the big idea. I just sort of said it there for you. I don't know <laughs> if it's true or not. Uh, and I want to emphasize that, especially, you know, I don't want to get fired or something. I'm not saying space <laughs> is divine. I, like, I'm not staking my whole reputation on this. I don't necessarily agree. I just think it's a really fascinating idea that people aren't talking about enough because it's interesting. And as I argue in the book, it merits serious consideration one way or the other. Sure, absolutely, yeah. Well, it's fascinating for sure, if nothing else. You have talked a good bit already about kind of this balance between imminence and transcendence. 
but I want to press a little bit further just in case there's there's more you have to say about that with respect to kind of Moore's views of space. Um, if you've already kind of unloaded your whole gun, so to speak, on that topic, that's totally fine. We can move on to the next question. But I, I want to I want to talk about the way he he maybe perhaps successfully or not kind of balances imminence with transcendence in the way that he speaks about space, which you you talk about a good bit in, in your Space God book, especially in, in the introduction. So could you say a bit more about kind of what you mean by this successful balance between the two? Yeah. So I think I don't want to say that the traditional scholastic medieval tradition doesn't have a good answer for this. Rather, I will say there are some other theologians who have critiqued that tradition for failing to provide an omnipresence really does justice to what we mean by God being present everywhere. The view of omnipresence that's often put forward traditionally is this very analogous sort of ethereal omnipresence where it's like God is everywhere. Well, what do you mean? Do you mean God's literally everywhere? Well, no, no, God's not literally everywhere. Well, what what do you mean then? Well, God exists in sort of a spiritual sense everywhere. That's sort of analogous, I mean, by presence. And it, as you sort of listen, it it gets more and more abstract and more and more distanced from what we ever tend to mean by the term being present somewhere. And so some have said that the traditional account of God's omnipresence lacks a literalness or a spatiality that can account for how God can actually be present to spatial entities who exist in time and space. And so the critique is that they, the traditional account can't really explain how God is close or near or imminent or omnipresent with us in, in that sense. Now, I don't know where that's true or not. I, I could argue both sides. But were we to, for the sake of this discussion, assume that that's a valid critique, then Henry Moore would be providing an alternative account whereby God is literally present. Space is literally present in the same sense that we mean normally by when we say something's present. Because space is actually here. Like I'm right now flapping my arms in and through space. You can't see it because this is an audio recording, not a video one. But like space is very much here <laughs> all the time, present. And what we mean by to be present is literally to exist in space with, to exist with something in the same space. Like to be present is sort of an inherently spatial term, at least in the phenomenologically normal sense that we use it. And the, the traditional account would push back and say, no, we don't have to forfeit presence to the literal spatial. We can have a spiritual presence. And I, I understand what they're saying, um, but we've already said the critique of that. So Henry Moore is kind of giving away that God could literally be present with and as space itself. And yet the fear, and this is the fear that always motivates these spiritualized accounts of omnipresence, is no one wants to make God too imminent, too one with the created universe, too present, because then you start to slip into breaking down the creator-creature distinction, and hey, you end up with Spinoza. And mm -hmm. so I think the really cool thing about Moore is, well... If space is divine, but the matter that exists within space is not divine, that allows God to be with the created material world in the same way that space is present with the matter that exists within it, 
without being identical with or reducible to it. And so that's the, the little two-step that Moore is doing there, where, yes, God is imminent because God's, you know, space is the possibility of anything being imminent in space. Um, and so he's giving an account of the divine omnipresence that's spatial, that's literal, and very truly imminent in a sense that's true to our phenomenological sense of what it means to be present in our daily lives. He's not having to to pivot to a very ethereal, abstract, overly spiritualized account that doesn't really resonate with our actual phenomenological sense of the word present. So he's doing that, but he's doing it in a way that doesn't get you to pantheism. He's trying to still hold the creator-creature distinction because that's important to him. He's not just a Christian. He's a Platonist, right? He really doesn't want to collapse the creator and creature. He doesn't want to collapse form and matter. He doesn't, you know, he doesn't want to mm-hmm. collapse the eternal and the temporal. He, he wants to keep those separate. And this is how he does it. Yeah. So let's, let's kind of move into the scientific revolution. And then we can, we can talk a bit about Einstein as well as we move on. So what, what if any influence did Moore's ideas about divine space have on uh, thinkers like Isaac Newton and just in general, kind of the formation of modern science, would you say? Yeah, so Moore is a Cambridge Platonist. Uh, key there, Cambridge. So Moore is at Cambridge, and he comes back and is there around the time that Isaac Newton is there in the mid-1600s. And Moore is beginning to talk about divine space around this time. And I actually make an argument in the book that Moore is talking about this subject even earlier than scholars tend to think he is. So g- giving even more time for divine space to percolate throughout Cambridge so that it's being talked about. And so the exact extent to which Moore directly influenced Newton, I personally think it ultimately doesn't matter because whether or not Moore sat Newton down and said, look here, young man, divine space, uh, or whether Moore just came up with this idea, it was in the air at Cambridge because he was there and Newton heard about it. Newton adopts divinity of space. Very clearly. He nuances it a bit for more, but Mathematica Principia, he, you know, he's holding on to this sort of metaphysical divine view of space. And I argue in the book that it's actually this view of space that provides the metaphysical grounding and objectivity for Newton's picture of the material world, precisely because space is absolute divine metaphysical it provides the absolute objective framework in which we can say science is getting us to actual truth and is doing it in an objective sense and is not just a secondary or relativistic discipline and so i say that not only does newton adopt henry moore's view he actually takes it in a way that I think is foundational for Newton's scientific project and his view of the sciences. Um, And as your listeners may or may not know, Newton's view of space and the physics that are bound up with that become dominant for hundreds of years. And so in this odd little way, Henry Moore is making God part of the scientific revolution. There's this sort of divine metaphysics that's undergirding Newton's picture of the universe in which he does science and in which he thinks about the physics. And divine space is sort of the metaphysics that undergirds Newton's physics. 
And so in that sense, Henry Moore is highly influential through Newton and divine space is highly influential through Newton, even though soon, you know, in the 1800s, the divine part of that space is going to be lobbed off. People are going to secularize Newton's ideas. And by the time Einstein's getting there, no one's talking about divine space, even though they've adopted the theories that were sort of hung from it, you know, mm. as a, a stocking on the fireplace. I think Moore is secretly <laughs> quite influential on the scientific revolution. And there's a theological genealogy in there worth talking about because it, you know, it, anytime uh, religious people can be like, we caused the scientific revolution, uh, even if it's a bit <laughs> overstated, we're, we're going to do it. <laughs> you know, we don't want to seem like we're anti-science. So I think, I don't, I don't think more caused the scientific revolution. I think a lot of Newton's theories made sense without it, but I think more provided the broader physical, philo, the broader philosophical metaphysical framework for those physics mm -hmm. in Newton. And I think that's a very defensible case. Get to Einstein, who nobody ever would have suspected that Newton's view of absolute space and time would be overturned. But here comes Einstein and relativizes space and time. Mm -hmm. And by Einstein's time, nobody's talking about divine space anymore. So Einstein didn't knock divine space out of the running but he knocked the absolute metaphysicalness of that space out of the picture. And so uh, if anyone was ever going to reconsider the divinity of space, they're definitely not going to do it now after Einstein, right? And so post-Einstein, nobody's talking about divine space. But <laughs> that's what the book is kind of daring to do is say, well, it seems like Einstein ended this conversation, but did he actually? Is it still possible with a few nuances here and there to still hold to divine space post Einstein and still be an Orthodox Christian? That's the question I attempt to answer in the book. I think before we get into further into Einstein, because we will, we will get further in, uh, into talking about him and sort of post like what, what Moore's theories mean or how they might hold up after Einstein's theories of relativity and space-time. But before we get into that, I, I want to talk about also um, another, another thing you write in the introduction, uh, which is, uh, I'm going to quote here a, a little bit um, from page five of your book. This You say, this project will provide a reappraisal of divine space, um, as you kind of have been alluding to already, concluding that it still has contemporary relevance in theology and philosophy of religion today. So, you know, in, in brief, to the extent that you can in a podcast interview, could you share a bit about what uh, what you would say this is kind of this contemporary relevance of Moore's theory of divine space that you're talking about here? Yeah. Well, the first half of the project's a historical sort of uh, descriptive account. So I'll ignore that and I'll get into chapter four through seven. Chapter four basically looks at the scientific and philosophy of science stuff that goes into this. And creates a fourfold case for why Einstein didn't end the question of a metaphysical space. And I argue that it's plausible to still hold to relativity and everything Einstein said in terms of the actual facts, like agreeing with that, but recasting that physics within a different metaphysics from the 
uh, verificationist one of the 20th century that still allows for a theological view of space. Um, so chapter four is basically, hey, relativity and science haven't actually ended this discussion. That was all about physics. But what we're talking about is metaphysics. And actually, Einstein couldn't really settle that because that's not a scientific question. It's a philosophical and theological one. And here's the science and the philosophy of science to back up what I'm saying. Um, so that's chapter four. Um, so that's sort of a philosophy of science and a scientific, even though I, I make it very clear I'm not a scientist, attempt to say, hey, constructively, you can still do stuff with this and not just be an idiot who rejects science. Uh, that's mm -hmm. chapter four. Chapter five, I attempt to argue, and this is where I go through Newton's works, and I basically contend that without the absolute metaphysical divine frame of space, Newton is hinting that matter loses its objective primariness. And it's hard to have this conversation uh, except for the filter of Locke, but I think Newton and Locke are very similar in some ways. Um, basically, I'll use Locke here, but Locke world for the lens of primary and secondary qualities. Primary qualities are actually in the world. Secondary qualities are relative to the subjective viewer. So primary qualities are actually in the object. Secondary qualities are in the subject who views the object. So uh, let me give an example here. Color is often considered a secondary quality which is why people can be colorblind or see different colors and shades differently. Um, because color is not really in the thing. It's the subjective illusion of color that occurs in your mind. But what has been considered a primary quality is, I'm knocking on my desk here, the, the shape, the quantity, the stuff, the amount, the movement and motion of material stuff. And... So th those are primary qualities. You know, I might look at a ruler and it might look yellow to one person and black and white to another person and have different shades to another person. But the fact that it is 10 inches long is an objective thing in the ruler itself that's not relative to the observer. The amount, the size, the quantity, the shape, the, the motions and movements and material things about reality, those are primary. Those are really in the thing itself, not relative to secondary observers. Now apply that to absolute space. If there is an absolute space, then when the arrow gets shot directly up, we can say, well, like it goes straight up from your relative perspective on Earth. But there's actually an objective primary answer to this. It moves with the motion of the Earth. That's the objective absolute answer. But if space is relative uh, and relative to inertial frames, then the perspective of the person on, on Earth and the perspective of the person in outer space are equal. Neither one is superior to the other, in which case there is no primary objective answer to which way did it curve. And so there are no matter of facts about the facts of the matter. And so I argue that without the absolute or at least metaphysical framework that space provided, you couldn't actually make the move that the scientific revolution made, which was to say that matter and the scientific world were objective.
we're primary, we're really true, not just relative to one person's brain or one person's time and place and culture, but actually in the object itself, actually in the matter. We're actually describing reality mathematically as it is in itself. Actually, you can't really make that move if you get rid of an absolute metaphysical spatial frame. Because in that case, Bishop Barclay's critiques become valid. The object (laughs) looks big to someone who's close to it and small to someone who's further away. And so there is no objective matter of fact about the facts of matter. There's no primary truth about the object itself. There's just subjective views of it. And you would say, oh, but just because the viewers are in different places doesn't mean that relativity is in the object itself. That's just their position. Exactly. If there is no objective absolute frame, you can't make appeals to the objective thing in itself. All you can appeal is to specific inertial frames or perspectives, and you no longer have the primary in itself objective nature of the object itself. Um, And so in that sense, I argue that without Newton's divine metaphysical absolute framework, science itself can no longer claim to be any more objective than anything else. I argue that to say that science has provided evidence to disprove absolute space, okay, but if you disprove absolute space, you negate the philosophical foundations that give science its ability to make claims about objective reality, and so undercut yourself. Now, again, none of this, I actually think, rejects any science. I argue in the previous chapter, and I hopefully will explain later in the interview, how I don't think the facts of relativity and what uh, Einstein did actually negate a metaphysical or absolute frame of space. I think they're actually quite consistent with that. um, And I can explain that later. However, for anyone who does think that they actually rejected absolute space, I make this argument in chapter five for why that's sort of self-refuting. Then in chapter, so that's chapter five. Then in chapter six, I essentially try to create a new argument for the existence of God out of divine space. Um, And it's not totally new. It's sort of a revision of the ontological argument. I basically argue that thought is inherently spatial. And I I take a Kantian approach to this to say that all thoughts, at least all thoughts about the external universe, are inherently spatial. You can't really picture something without picturing it in space. And even if you picture it right up against you, you know, you're still picturing it as up against you in space and all of this type of stuff. And so I argue that space Uh, that thought itself is inherently spatial. And then I appeal to the tradition of arguing that that which is thought somehow reflects reality itself. And that's the traditional ontological argument type of move, which is that if God in thought or by definition or in a way that is inherent to the thought of God itself, then God must be true of reality. And I say, okay, Uh, Let's take those two premises. And the idea that thought itself could be indicative of external reality is pretty inherent to what most people think about. Because how do we know contradictions can't be true? Is it because we overturned and lifted up every log in the universe to make sure there were no contradictions under there? No, it's because thought itself is inherently logical and non-contradictory. And so we assume that our logical categories are indicative of reality, right? Well, we could say the same thing. If space is inherent to all thought, then you could say that spatiality must be true of reality itself. So I say, okay, 
And I argue that, well, in our heads, when we think spatially, once again, space is invisible. It's omnipresent. It's got all of those attributes in your head that it allegedly has out there. And I also argue that to thought itself can't imagine space without imagining it as an absolute frame. And even when people attempt to picture space-time as relative or twistable or almost like this material fabric, they're always in their brain picturing that within a broader space, which is why people have so much trouble imagining that space-time isn't expanding into a broader space, but that the Big Bang is the expansion of space and time itself. People can't picture that because their thoughts don't work that way. If I try to imagine space and time beginning at the Big Bang and sort of exploding outward, it's exploding out in my brain into a broader space that I'm picturing, right? It's impossible mm-hmm. to picture or think it, which is why people have so much trouble with it. Um, and which is why when you look at your textbook, they're always having the Big Bang space and time expand into the broader page because you couldn't not. It's not possible to think without a broader space in which you're thinking. Um, and so I basically say that when you look at the space, uh, the spatiality of thought itself, you end up with a lot of the same attributes of divine space. Because in your brain, when you try to imagine space, you can't imagine an edge, uh, a wall at the edge of space without picturing shooting an arrow over the wall. So space is once again, to thought itself, infinite. It's omnipresent because you can't picture going anywhere or picture anything except in space and yet it's invisible because you can't mentally think of space in a way that you can actually see it you can just see things in it and it's it's uh absolute in the way i just described uh even if you try to picture space as relative you're picturing relative space within a broader metaphysical absolute spatial frame and then i add the category of nearness or intimacy um because whenever you picture space space is it's close. It's space is in every thought. And it's not just something I'm looking out that's out there, like I'm thinking of a chair. No, space is out there as I'm looking, but it's also within here in the looker. It's, you know, behind me and within me is space. And it's impossible to picture something without picturing the space in which it is in and the space that is in it. And so there's always this intimacy to our cognitive thoughts about space. And so I basically argue, okay, if thought is inherently spatial, and if our spatial thoughts have these very divine sounding attributes, infinity, absoluteness, invisibility, intimacy, uh, and if our thoughts in their foundational categories are indicative of reality, which you have to kind of make that move if you want to say that logic and non-contradiction are indicative of the world, If those things all come together, then we can say that the fact that I cannot picture anything except picturing it within this absolute, invisible, transcendent spatiality means that there cannot be an external universe that exists unless there is an absolute, metaphysical, spatial, infinite, intimate entity that exists. And so it's sort of a revised ontological argument. If our thoughts are in some way indicative of what is really true, and if our thoughts are inherently spatial, and if spatiality in our thoughts 
has all of these attributes and you can't picture anything, whether it's a computer or a chair or a person, you can't picture anything in your brain except picturing them in space. If that's inescapably true of every thought, then perhaps for divine spatiality must be true in the same way that two plus two must equal four and the law of non-contradiction cannot be violated because they're inherent to the nature of thought itself. Uh, in which case, trying to think your way into atheism is sort of like trying to drown a fish, which is the <laughs> illustration I use in the book. Uh, if thought itself points to this broader divine spatiality, then we're not really going to be able to escape God. That's the yeah. argument of chapter six. And I, I, again, I'm not fully convinced of all of these. I'm just saying, hey, this is worth talking about. Uh, mm -hmm. And then the, the mm -hmm. argument of chapter seven is where I, as a Christian and an, an Orthodox Christian, I, I consider myself a fairly Orthodox Christian, and I, as uh, a Platonist or a Christian Platonist, I find it very important that we don't break down the creator-creature distinction. I think a lot of bad things happen when you break down the creator-creature distinction. You make God one with evil. You make God one with matter and lower-level things. You get idolatry. You get the golden calf. I think you, you break down morality itself because if the force is one with everything, then it's one with good and evil. And so Anakin should kill the younglings because why not? That's God too. <laughs> um, so... I am very much, hey, we need to keep the creator and the creature separate. We can't collapse these. I am all on board with that. And I'm very convinced about it as a Platonist and as a Christian. So I am deeply orthodox in regards to that aspect of the creator-creature distinction. And chapter seven is my attempt to say why Henry Moore, for the creator-creature distinction, actually helps support it. And that gets into my whole point before. Christians have always struggled to find a way to make God imminent without sacrificing mm -hmm. God's transcendence. And Henry Moore mm -hmm. provides a unique, interesting, provocative, exciting, and really not thus far talked about much an answer to this. And I don't know whether it's true or not, but people should be debating whether it's true more. I'm not smart enough to mm -hmm. answer the question, especially when it gets into the science. But my hope with this book was hey, Here's this. Can someone who knows what they're talking about come and figure out if this is <laughs> right or not? Um, that's right. that's kind of right. what chapter seven is, which is I don't think it violates the creator-creature distinction. And so I don't think this should be a problem for Christians. I think there's a compelling argument uh, philosophically that this actually prove, would create a new argument for the existence of God, which is no small thing in itself. And there's an argument that science doesn't work unless it is grounded in this absolute metaphysical divine framework and those things together are not small claims like mm -hmm. we we need to take this seriously because it has some major potential ramifications and hey it's nice that it doesn't actually violate christian orthodoxy when it comes to the creator creature distinction and may actually mm -hmm. give us a new way forward in regards to that 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 allows us to to walk that type rope better so Again, I don't know if it's true or not, but I definitely think it should be an ongoing discussion in philosophy of religion in today in a way that it simply isn't. No one else is talking mm -hmm. about this. Mm -hmm. There was one paper where someone, uh, this guy named Oakes, did a bit on it for a few pages. But like, no one's talking about this as a plausible, constructive, ongoing option that you could actually believe in. 
And to me, that's, we should be. So especially in the omnipresence discussion, because omnipresence is a big debate today. And this should be one of the options. Mm -hmm. Before we get into Einstein and kind of post-Einstein, maybe for our listeners who aren't familiar or aren't as familiar with Einstein, I'm kind of raising my own hand here and his theories, uh, especially around relativity, um, could you, this is no uh, uh, no small question, but could you kind of explain in brief what, what it is that he's he's doing with his theory of relativity and how that kind of overturns, as you said earlier, kind of Moore's idea of divine space? Yeah. So I always preface this with, I'm not a scientist. And the only reason I could write this book is because I don't think it's a science book. I think it's uh, a theology book, a philosophy book, and at most a philosophy of science book, not a mm-hmm. science book. That preface in place, I would say that uh, basically with Newton, time were absolute. Space, you know, if you were in one location in space, you were an objective absolute number of miles away from someone else. And that wasn't a matter of perspective or a relative question that there was an objective answer because, you know, you could mathematically chart it within the broader frame of an absolute metaphysical space and things within space could move in relation to each other, but space itself didn't like move space didn't get twisted or warped in the way that you see it in things like interstellar where a black hole warps the shape of space or twists and can almost tear it like in uh, Star Trek where the the black hole sort of creates this hole in space-time so you can travel back in time, right? The way that Einstein pictures space and time is almost kind of like not the spatial frame in which matter exists, but almost like another material thing. Now, granted, he wouldn't say it's material in the sense that it's matter and atoms, but it's almost pictured like this blanket. And then you can drop a bowling ball in the center of the blanket and uh, twist and stretch space and time. And in that sense, it's making space part of the relativity that formerly thought to only belong to matter, not the spatial frame it exists within. I'm trying not to actually talk about any of Einstein's thought experiments because that just makes it harder. <laughs> but basically, basically space isn't absolute. You can twist it, sure. you can stretch it, you can you can do all these things. And you could even perhaps jump from one part of space to another, or you could twist space back on itself to make things that are at opposite sides of the universe come closer because like a piece of paper, it twists back on itself. And so the front, the top of the paper is now close to the bottom of the paper because you folded the paper in half. We're we're picturing space post-Einstein in ways that it's not absolute, metaphysical absolute in in a way that would be thought to be compatible with classical theism. This is more like, ooh, look, we're going to play with space and twist and tear and turn it and all of that type of stuff, which, of Mm -hmm. course, is why classical theists would say, well, that type of space certainly isn't compatible with God, because God, you can't twist and tear and stretch and fold him back in on himself. Yeah, just kind of piecing this together. So so essentially what you're saying is that, I mean, really basic nuts and bolts that actually Einstein's theories of relativity don't 
don't necessarily have to collapse an idea of absolute space or metaphysical space like you're talking about. And so they're not necessarily incompatible with Moore's theories of divine space. Am I hearing you correctly? Yes. So I don't think you can deny this and be a scientifically literate person today. Einstein showed that we cannot find an absolute spatial reference frame and say this is more real than that frame. Um, You cannot say that the person who is looking up at the arrow on the earth has a more primary frame than the person in outer space looking at the curvature of the arrow. You You cannot say that we can know what that primary frame is. Einstein has shown that no one inertial frame or spatial frame can be considered the objective frame. It's that we could never figure out what that frame is. So we cannot know what the absolute spatial frame is. I think he's shown that you can't prove what the inertial frame is for sure. My answer to this is one where I will not deny any of the scientific facts that Einstein actually has pointed out and observed and noted. Mm -hmm. I would argue that none of these arguments are going to reject any of the science of relativity. I'm not going to be making any sort of claim about the physics. I'm going to be making metaphysical claims about how we frame those physics. So that's the preface. The first way that we could say is to say, okay, yes, space and time are expanding since the Big Bang, but what are they expanding into? Physicists would retort very quickly, uh, you don't understand this theory. It's not that expanding into space, it's that space and time themselves are what is expanded. I would say, okay, that's what the physics says is necessary for the theory. The physics doesn't say anything beyond there is a spatial and temporal expansion. But the metaphysician could say, okay, well, what if there's a metaphysical space into which the space-time of physics is expanding? And the physicist would say, well, we don't have any evidence for that. And the philosopher theologian would say, great, we talk about things we don't have evidence for all the time. (laughs) You know, we, we might not be able to prove that there is a broader metaphysical frame in which space and time in the physicist sense are expanding, but that doesn't mean those things don't exist. And Einstein had sort of a positivist verificationism, which was sort of endemic to his time period, where if you didn't have evidence for something, it's not valid to believe in it. And so when he said that there is no absolute inertial frame. What he actually meant is, from the human's perspective, from a scientific perspective, we can't know whether there's an absolute inertial or spatial frame. And I would agree. He's totally right. We can't know that. But that doesn't mean it doesn't exist. And theologians should be particularly sensitive to the plight of uh, things that can't prove they exist. Because, you know, hey, God, right? Um, like, you know, from a physicist perspective, I'm not going to be able to point to where God is in the system. You, you can make arguments and stuff, but there, you're, it's always going to be a metaphysical framing of the arguments. It, it's never going to be physics proves this definitively. And so I would say 
no matter what the physics says about the expansion of space-time, you can always postulate a broader metaphysical space in which it's expanding. And that is bolstered by the cognitive case I made that thought itself always requires you to do that. And since thought is essential to physics, you can't just jettison it and say, well, screw how we think about these things. Because if you screw how you think about these things, then you're screwing the whole rational enterprise. You mm-hmm. have to take seriously the phenomenological encounter your brain has with the spatiality of all thought. And that encounter always pictures a broader, arguably metaphysical space in which space and time are expanding. So that's the first move, is to just say, everything Einstein said about the physics of space and time are legitimate. But we can postulate the metaphysics of a space in which space-time is expanding into. And that makes a lot of cognitive sense to high schoolers who have been like, what the hell do you mean? It's not expanding into space, but it's the expansion of space-time itself. Um, So that's the first move, which is just to say, yes, we admit everything Einstein said, but what he said it about was physics. We're talking metaphysics. There's a broader metaphysical frame in which the physics of space-time exists. So that's move one. Move two, and I love that this is audio, not video, because I can just like pull up the book and, you know, oh, sound very smart reading out of the book. The point two is that I'm actually not reading from the book now. So now I'm going to sound stupid if I'm not super articulate. Um, (laughs) Point two is that Einstein didn't actually relativize space-time. Rather, he relativized space and time seen separately as distinct things. And what that means is that when you uh, look at space on its own, it will always seem relative. And when you look at time on its own, it will always seem relative. But when you combine them into space-time, there is, it is possible to argue that there is what is often called a cosmic space-time or a cosmic block of space-time, where space and time taken together as space-time are absolute. And so if you look at the equation solely from a time perspective, it'll seem relative. And if you look at it separately and look at it just from a space perspective, it'll seem relative. But that's because space and time are not in and of themselves absolute. It's only when they're together as space-time that you get an absolute block of cosmic space-time. In which case, just say, well, space and time are both absolute, and it's, it's an absolute metaphysical divine space-time. Not just space, not just time, space-time. So that's a second move someone might want to make. I think there's potentially problems with that, as there are with all of this. But that's one move someone could make, is to to just make it a divine space-time. And so there's a a cosmic space-time that's consistent with absolutes. Uh, The third option, which isn't my favorite, but William Lane Craig actually has defended it quite vehemently, is to return to a neo-Lorenzian interpretation of relativity. And to really dumb it down, it basically says that relativity uh, isn't noting relativity in reality itself, but in our measures of reality. Hmm. That when we try to test for and measure for things like reality, uh, like relativity, our instruments with which we use to measure themselves stretch and relativized, you could say. And he would say, now that might seem 
a bit far-fetched, but is it more far-fetched than relativizing space and time themselves? To, to throw out the absoluteness of space and time is to, to negate one of the most basic foundational, like transcendental aspects of reality itself. It might seem far-fetched to say that it's the measuring instruments that are relativized, but isn't that a better option than saying reality itself is relativized? Um, and what's interesting about the Neil Lorenzian interpretation is it doesn't deny any of the actual facts. It can account for all of the same details, all of the mathematics. It just accounts for them by relativizing the instruments rather than that which is measured. Um, so that's another move. I'm not a huge fan of that. Um, but uh, I note it because William Lane Craig seems to be. And mm -hmm. even though people laugh about Craig, you know, being an apologist and stuff like that, when you're talking about the philosophy of time, he knows what he's talking about. That's his area. Mm -hmm. um, so I, I take that quite seriously. Um, and that so those are those are kind of um, moves you could make. Uh, another move, which I, I wouldn't make, and I don't think more makes, but you could just bite the bullet and go for a canonic space time. Sure, space and time are relativized. Sure, matter stretches space but hey sort of what christ did on the cross can't mm -hmm. we have a divine space time where god allows um himself to be stretched and warped and twisted and torn to make room for creation and matter mm -hmm. um and i don't make that move uh in this book that's not the move i, I defend um because that would i think potentially break down the creator creature distinction and i don't want to do that but and I also think Moore wouldn't want to do that. And I, I also think that what makes Moore's theory so interesting is that you don't have to go to that to go to that length to make mm -hmm. it work. It, it it's a it's there's ways to defend it without going there. And it, it's precisely uh, the fact that it doesn't have to go there that I think it makes it so interesting as a theory. But I still think it's worth mentioning as one piece in a cumulative case that, hey, there's still plausibility to divine space post-Einstein. Even if you don't agree with each of those pieces of the cumulative case, you can nonetheless agree that together they provide a plausibility to it. And so that's why I would mention that. Mm, sure. Anyways, Absolutely. any scientist listening is probably going to hate everything I just said. And I was really <laughs> stuttering and stumbling through that because it's really hard to articulate that without yeah, using yeah. the technical language and to speak in a way that people would understand. And so I think I just sounded like an idiot, uh, but that's what I was trying to do. I was trying to sound like an idiot so I could contextualize to all you idiots out there um, who have now decided not to buy my book because I called you an idiot. And that, that I understand that. Well, I did not think it sounded idiotic. So I hope that's uh, some consolation at least. As we kind of uh, close things out here, I want to turn again actually to this issue of pantheism and kind of Moore's relationship to Spinoza. That is, if there are, if there's kind of more you would like to say there, if you haven't already said everything you wanted to say on that front. Um, so how, how would you say, if you wanted to kind of tease that out a little further, Moore's idea of divine space, especially kind of spatial omnipresence, like we've talked so much about already, how does that answer the problem of pantheism that we find in, in philosophers like Spinoza. Yeah. So I don't want to deal specifically with Spinoza's account because Spinoza's not 
going to pantheism in order to explain how God can be omnipresent. That's not why he's doing that. I I would just say that what I, what I think I, I hopefully explains, which is that if you are a Christian and you hold to traditional Christian views of God, God has to be omnipresent. That's one of the traditional doctrines. And maybe you could get rid of that. Uh, I don't, I don't want to say we can or should, but I imagine there are probably some who fit that bullet. Um, but I don't want to bite that bullet. I think God is present with what God has made and present with creation and in creation. And so it is important to me that there's nowhere I can go where God is not, that God is the one in whom we live and move and have our being. And I, I think more allows God to be literally present and here, but without God having to be made into a material object. Because usually when we say something is present, we mean it's present in the way that material objects are spatially present in the world. My wife is present with me, next to me. My, uh, I am present at my parents' house. I'm physically there. You know, like the way that we use the language of presence is very literal. It's very physical, material, and spatial. And what Moore would say is, well, there's a way to make it not material, but still spatial. And that allows it to be present without being material or part of creation. So I think what Moore does is allows the Christian to hold that God is truly, literally, spatially present with us, no matter where we go. And yet without making God another physical object that is present with us. Um, Because that's the fear is that once you start describing God as present in the way that you describe other physical things as present, you're talking about God like God's an object, like God's a being rather than being itself. And I think more view of divine space kind of articulates a way to avoid that while still holding to the traditional doctrine of omnipresence. Yeah, absolutely. Okay, so as we as we finish up, uh, I want to give you an opportunity, if you'd like to, to just share a bit about what's next for you professionally. If you if you have any um, kind of projects in the works or anything you'd like to plug here as we finish. Sure. Yeah. So my next book coming out uh, is an introduction to Christian theology book, which I'm doing with IVP, um, and I'm turning that in in like two weeks. So hopefully that'll be oh, out. Nice. Maybe late fall, early next year, we'll see. Then I also am doing a edited volume with John Milbank and Ryan Hacker uh, called New Trinitarian Ontologies. Uh, We're editing it and that should hopefully be out by Christmas. Uh, So give that to someone instead of a lump of coal. Um, (laughs) But that's an exciting project that um, we'll be plugging soon. And the I do have another book coming out with Cascade, which is called Zeus Was an Atheist, an odd retelling of the Moses story. So mm-hmm. those are the books coming out in the next year, year and a half. But other than that, I would check out the podcast, the Spiritually Incorrect podcast. We I co-host it with Seth Hart, and we basically do any crazy topic we can find, um, but from a Christian sort of perspective. We've had someone on we had a a professor at mit come on and talk to us about ghosts um we had 
we just had uh, next week we have Robin Perry talking about universalism. The previous oh, week nice. we had a different speaker, uh, Zachary Manis, talking about a more traditional view of hell. We had um, we had Sarah Lane Ritchie come on and talk about whether psychedelic experiences with uh, psychedelic drugs uh, can actually help you see God or whether those are just hallucinations. Oh, wow. um, uh, we had, yeah, so we've just had lots of uh, different speakers. We do science, we do philosophy, theology, history, those kind of things. And we had a witch on the show. We had an exorcist on the show. Wow. Uh, we kind of, we really get around. So, and we do it in a fun <laughs> way. And uh, so we basically just find any crazy topic we can and have fun with it, discuss it rigorously, Christianly, and also with a bunch of humor. So check that out if you're interested, sure. spirituallyincorrectpodcast.com. Sounds so. delightful. I'm definitely going to have to check that out. And I will say at Whippetstock, we're very non-competitive. So we like to befriend our competitors. So we will, <laughs> we're happy to plug the Spiritually Incorrect podcast. And, and I'll be sure to leave a link in the show notes to that as well so people can find it easily. Outside of that, is there anywhere people can find you or learn more about your work? Do you have any social media profiles, for instance? Yeah, I mean, I'm on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, YouTube. I have a YouTube channel, JD Lionheart. Um, but if you want access to all of that in one place, jdlionheart.com. So J-D-L-Y-O-N-H-A-R-T.com. That's my website. It pretty much summarizes and links to everything else I'm doing. So. Awesome. We'll leave a link in the show notes for that as well. Well, I just want to say thank you again, Jonathan. It's been a really, really fascinating conversation for our listeners. The book is, again, Space God. Rejudging a debate between Moore, Newton, and Einstein. We'll leave a link in the show notes so you can find it. Thank you very much, Jonathan, for taking the time to chat today. Yeah, thank you so much. Mm -hmm.